right, thank you for joining me for DS Magic's audio production podcast, uh, Democratizing Music. Uh, podcast is focused on the fact that we could all make our own podcast, all make our own music right now if we wanted to. Uh, so let's do that the best way that we can. Uh, we're going to interview today uh, Luke Walstead, who is a local guitar uh, instructor, uh, a live performer, recording artist, songwriter, um, just musician extraordinaire. Um, and we're going to talk to him specifically about his experiences recording and uh, how he got started performing live. So without further ado, uh, here we are with Luke. <laughs> Okay, and I'm joined now by Luke Walstead, a, uh, a local live performing musician uh, here in Tacoma, Washington. But uh, suffice to say, he is quite amazing and should have more notoriety than he does. So, Luke, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing good, thanks. So, um, we're going we're gonna to start, I think, uh, because... If uh, if it's anything like uh, like many of the musicians I know and people in audio that I know, um, you were probably in some sort of a, a school band or maybe even like involved in a youth group band, uh, like a church, or maybe doing sound even. for A lot of people do have done sound for their churches and things like that. So I guess, uh, yeah, were you in AV club in high school uh, or, so- or anything else like that? So, like, my uh, introduction to the world of, um, like, all things to do with audio and mixing, live sound, recording, all that kind of stuff was definitely uh, very convoluted and learning things. Like, I wasn't, first of all, I was homeschooled. And so I wasn't Mm. involved in any kind of, like, high school plays or anything like that. I didn't have any of those opportunities. And when I was... 17 i started serving on a church um like worship band as a guitarist and i only would interact with the sound people as a sort of way to like trying to help get the sound better because we had nobody nobody knew what they were doing (laughs) and all i knew is that the sound wasn't good and i kept getting complaints from people in the congregation which i don't know why they were talking to me because i had no (laughs) no experience at that point but I started sort of dabbling around with it and picking up things very slowly. And then um, through playing more and more live shows with with people, not like in a band setting, but as a solo artist, uh, say open mics or coffee shops, mm-hmm. I would talk to whoever was running sound and try to learn a little bit um, from them. And especially when I went into a recording session um, to track my first um, like professionally recorded EP, yeah. Um, I actually like really started picking the guy's brain, and I was hanging out with him while he was mixing and and everything. And so that's kind of how I I learned it. There was not any proper training. It was more like the sound sucks. We need to dial the suck factor down now. How do we do that? <laughs> in, in like dial the different- suck factor down. I love that. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, <laughs> like I do. Sometimes I do. in those little venues, it's just like the sound can be so horrible if, if someone's just twisting knobs and they don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, so <laughs> I feel like it's an. I actually want to drill down thing. on a couple things I heard there. Like, uh, so 
for for instance, you just mentioned that like uh, at the church in uh, playing in the church choir and the, the church band that people would complain about how the the sound sucked and like no one knew what they were doing, right? Yeah. Uh, was it the same as it was in in my church situation growing up, where uh, they they probably had like a five thousand dollars worth of equipment, but yet had no one that had any kind of knowledge or experience to 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 run it? No, so it was like they didn't really have a lot. They maybe had like a grand and like a lot of the stuff had kind of been donated. It was fine and it worked fine, Mm -hmm. but they definitely, I I will say one thing they did right is they didn't like spend a ton of money on a system and then not bother to um, train their people. It was kind of like everything was just cobbled together. Gotcha. And so it was like, you know, and it was something like at that church that um, about the time I started attending that church, there wasn't um, like there there was a kind of a new pastor and everything. The old pastor had retired, and there was a focus on changing the music, and so there wasn't like there everything was sort of being figured out on the fly, right. and and it was like yeah, I guess cobbled together is probably the best word for that. Um, and later on. Um, sort of toward the end of my my time there, they put a ton of money into a sound system, and um, and started sort of training people. So I th- I think they were doing a pretty good job on that front. But I tell you what, though, it's hard when someone volunteers. It's hard to uh, correct them. Like if someone's volunteering right. to do sound, to go up and tell them like, hey you know, I think you're, you're turning this down too much, which is making this sound too loud, which is then making everyone complain. So then you're turning this down. You know, it's like we would have the, the classic issue of the drummer is too loud. And I'm like, we'll turn up the mains and it won't seem like the drums are too loud. The reason right. why the drums are too loud is because a nobody drum set can hear is anything. so freaking loud just naturally. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. you'd have guys like playing with hot rods and we even put a cage around the drums and it ended up being fine, but it was just like, we're so afraid to uh, be too loud that we're just making the mix horrible. Mm-hmm. And so even at a moderate volume, a terrible mix no one wants to listen to so it's just like you know if all you can hear is drums even if it's not hurting your ears it still is just like oh these darn kids and they're too loud music and you know that's true yeah i mean that's kind of the point i was trying to get at there with that line of questioning is that like yeah uh it's it's not like uh music is not like golf you can't buy your way out of the problem uh, to any degree, right? Like, no matter how much money you drop on some system, unless it's literally AI that just runs your sound for you, uh, which I'm not right. aware that they make that yet. Um, God, wouldn't that be sweet, though? I'm sure. Sorry. It's, it's, it's got to be around the corner. Um, copyright, by the way, Daniel Shower, uh, 2020. Um, but that being said, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, unless it's that, unless you got someone who knows which knobs to turn, you know, and like what sounds bad and, you know, has some ears. Um, it's, it's always going to sound bad. So, uh, yeah. that's why I found it really cool that when you started playing like open mics, you mentioned that you were trying to learn like what the guy running the open mic was doing. Um, what, what was like, did you run into like a challenge at your first couple of open mics? Um, like, um, uh, I couldn't hear myself or, or, or things like that. I mean, so the first open mic that I went to was, um, 
I don't even think it's there anymore. It was on, uh, it was the, the, not, yeah, it was a metronome cafe. And, um, they had a, like two big speakers up on the wall, two mains or whatever, but they look like almost like someone had either stripped the, you know, like carpet covering, uh, on those old style, like plywood block mm-hmm. speaker boxes, you know, they have like yeah. that black carpet on them. It was like somebody had stripped all of that off and you could see a lot of the components <laughs> in the thing. So huh. it's either like, this is homemade or somebody has stripped these, but they had those ugly as sin up on the wall. And when you'd stand on the stage to perform, you couldn't hear anything. Oh. Like you couldn't hear anything. And I like, I, you know, as a, as an acoustically trained musician, right. Both as, as a pianist and then kind of primarily as an acoustic guitar player, even though I, I do play a lot of electric guitar, I always think acoustic first, mm-hmm. um, dynamics are a massive part of my playing dynamics and, you know, adjusting where my hand is hitting the strings on the oh, guitar yeah. can really change the timbre. Right. And, and you know that. And so when I can't hear any of that in in a performance it's really um disorienting and so every week i would talk i'm sorry to to interject but what you mean is like a bigger room just eats the sound like it just goes away and like you're there's no wall to bounce it back to you so like or or at least by the time you hear it bounce back to you it's it's too late and so like it's not it's not the kind of response that you're used to to hearing it's like you're hearing yourself on delay or you can't hear yourself at all right it's just really hard to to play in the same way is that what you're trying to get at yeah no you're 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 absolutely right it's like especially in i mean i'm I'm picturing that space i haven't been in there in years but (laughs) it's a really tall ceiling with a lot of piping and stuff above and then there'd be a ton of people sitting in front of you and then all of these weird surfaces behind because of the way the exterior wall was it didn't bounce any sound back at you It, it was like it was like singing at a giant sponge. Mm-hmm. It's like you couldn't hear anything coming back at you. And um, especially it was if the place was packed, which usually it would be. Um, at, at one point in the night, it would get overfilled to capacity. Um, standing room only, just tons of people in there because um, there's one person who had like a ton of draw. And so if you were up while the place was full, yeah, it was like singing to a giant kitchen sponge. There's just no sound coming at you. And so I would ask the sound guy, like, afterwards, what did it sound like? And then that sort of established a relationship. Right. And I started asking him, like, okay, so how do you adjust this? How do you change that? And he, I didn't realize at the time, he only knew a tiny bit more than me. <laughs> <laughs> and so he started asking me, like, what do you think when someone else was playing? And so I guess we were kind of learning together uh, <laughs> through that, yeah. but it was like, you know, just looking at a soundboard was so foreign to me. Like I didn't know what, what, uh, what to do with the various like low mid and, 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 you know, even just a basic three band EQ. I'm like, I don't right. know how to use that because it doesn't, it doesn't work like you think, right. You just see low mid high. Oh, I need more of this or I need more of that. It's like, well, <laughs> right. it's a little bit more delicate than that. It turns you know? out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just uh, it's an art to it, and you know, and I don't I don't want to go into a dissertation of how to mix sound or anything. No, let's let's not do that. Uh, I'll have a dedicated <laughs> podcast for that for sure. Um, but I'm the wrong person to talk to, anyway. But speaking, uh, I mean, I bet you do have some shortcuts, right? So, like, you play a lot live now, or or at least pre-COVID, 
played a lot yeah. live. Um, and, and I bet you had like, you left your EQ knobs for your vocal channel basically in the same spot, right? Like you basically, yeah. you templatized your hardware in, in a way, right? You Like as though yeah. you had a preset in software, you just left your knobs where they were and did your best not to mess with them. Yeah, 100%. Like if I rolled into a uh, a gig, say at a restaurant or something, I'm going to play for a couple hours, I've got my EQ already preset and I might sort of tweak it a little bit on the night depending upon what the room sounds like. Right, right. Um, if I were to give a couple of quick tips, it would be if you have an opportunity, like a long enough cable, if you're if you're a solo musician or a small group or whatever, whoever's adjusting the sound needs to get in front of the speakers and move around while the sound's happening. So I'd have a, like a long guitar cable and I would go, I would start playing and I would play in my playing position, right, in right. front of the mic. And then I'd go step out around that and I'd walk around as far away as I could, could reasonably get and tip my head, turn my head this way, that way and go like, okay, what is it sounding like? Because if it sounds like it's super quiet where I'm standing, but it could it could be 25 decibels louder, right. you know, 10 feet away, because right. you're actually now in full, you know, getting the full force of those speakers that are pointing at the audience. So I think that's really important. And I think... Have you ever used a looper to mix your own sound? Sorry to, to interrupt. I just was curious. No, I haven't. I never thought of that. It, I haven't either. I mean, you know that I use a looper, but like I, it I just know, occurred yeah. to me, oh man, that would be kind of a smart use of a looper, you know, like record kind of a loud riff and just walk around and you could yeah, literally because... make the adjustments to make, make that riff sound kind of the way that you wanted and, uh, and see, I, I've never tried that, but it might be worth an experiment. <laughs> that's, that's actually freaking brilliant, man. I would totally use that except I only have a looper on my electric guitar rig, but I've been, I've been wanting to get a little one, like, oh, you know, yeah. like one of those little, little one knob loopers for yeah. my acoustic guitar. But um, the other thing I think is, is presence. I think that people don't understand the, it, it's sort of the, the super high frequencies um, cause a lot of clarity. And I think people, when they want, when they want clarity in a small setting, they go for it by turning the volume up. And I find that a lot of times those really, really high frequencies, whether you call it, you know, the, the whatever they're called on your, your mixer might be different. Typically right, I, right. I see them as presence control, um, getting that just right where you're, you're sort of straddling between, um, choking it off too much and it sounds dull or too much of it and, uh, you know, boosting it too much. And it sounds like ice picks to your eardrums, but you find that sweet spot and you'll get a really clear sound that's just, it's delightful to hear. And I think, I think that's the number one thing in mixing that I see people doing wrong in live, in live settings or right. open mics and stuff like that is it just sounds like mud. And I'm like, gosh, if you just turn that, turn that brightness up a little bit on the really high end, um, man, it would just open everything up, you know? Yeah. I think that presence range is somewhere in the range of nine K I'm going to look that up and verify yeah. that in a second. I, <laughs> that was a cool trick, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, I'm um, with you. Yeah, at any rate. Um, uh, but you do have to be careful with that, right? Because it, it's also a feedback causer, like, whoa. Like, a, a lot of times that's where the ring sound starts from. So um, Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess in, like, 
I'm thinking like low volume, like restaurant, like most yep. of the places where yep. I've played, then it's less of a, an issue. Feedback's not an issue because you're not turning Or at least that not high. that super high thing. You'll get like those weird kind of, um, not the super low range, but you'll get that mid-low range kind of hum out of the guitar. That right. sort of like whoop, whoop, Starts whoop making your sound. A string vibrate. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing, um, which I, oh, I hate that sound. Me too. <laughs> like way more than screeching feedback like everyone dislikes that but to me that that sort of hollow ringy weird mid-low range thing that'll just take hold of your guitar and turn it into this i don't know it, it just it's soul sucking is what it is to me <laughs> you know it, it's like phase cancellation it just sucks the soul out of anything and um Anyway, I feel like we're getting way nerdier than I was expecting, but, you know. That's actually the whole point of the podcast uh, and, and stream. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I guess uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of drill down on that I heard you talk about earlier was uh, when you first recorded your first professional EP with, like, a, a real experienced, um, I guess, uh, recording producer or recording engineer. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you had an opportunity to sit down with him as he was mixing it. Uh, which, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll just say to anyone who's listening to this or watching this that uh, even if you had to pay extra money to do that, uh, it's probably worth your extra money to do that, at least for one song, because you'll learn quite a bit, especially if yeah. that guy is using the same, or girl, is using the same software that you might use to mix, for instance. Uh, that's yeah. something that I did at one point, and I found it extremely helpful. Did did you have the opportunity to do that at like uh, at a reduced cost, or uh, was that was that just something that you paid a little bit extra for on top? So um, I kind of had a little bit of a, a personal uh, at that point kind of lightweight leaning towards friendship relationship with the the sound engineer slash producer, and um, so he didn't charge me anything extra to do that, but he also didn't slow down. So it was right. like learn, you know, super super high speed. He's going through, he's going track by track, and he is just banging it out, man. And um, and so I was it hard was to keep kinda, up? It was really hard to keep up. But you sit there for a couple of hours, and he sometimes would li- like put a little bit. Of, he's a super high energy guy, so he could really multitask. And so sometimes he would give me a little bit of like, well, I'm doing this, and just kind of like thinking out loud, not really trying to teach me, but just, I think it actually helped his flow of work to be able to talk a little bit. And I just kind of sat there and shut up for the most part and just kind of encouraged him to keep telling me stuff. Hmm. Um, and like you mentioned, I I hadn't really thought about this, but he was using pro tools, which was the sound recording, uh, the, do you say DAW or you say DAW? Like, what's the, the, the uh, you know digital uh, audio workstation? That's going to be one of the lightning round questions that I think I'm going to ask uh, everyone who comes <laughs> on. Is uh, is it DAW or DAW? Um, so I, I you feel tell like me. If I, I feel like if I say DAW, then anyone who knows what you know that software is is going to understand. And if I say DAW, they're going to think that I had a stroke. Yep. So I always go daw that's been my policy as well uh because yeah (laughs) if if you happen to find yourself talking to an unexpected lay person that you thought might know what you were talking about uh yeah they're not gonna think you're talking about early morning on accident you know like Mm, i'm sorry did you have a stroke and forget to say the end (laughs) there what happened yeah yeah pretty much 
so any, anyway, long story short, I was used to Pro Tools and uh, at least an older version of Pro Tools. Somebody had given me like back when Pro Tools was, uh, you know, before you could download it. Right. So back in the day, if you had to buy the physical CD and all that kind of stuff, somebody had an old copy of it and gave it to me with an audio interface. And I just had learned how to use it by looking at YouTube tutorials and kind of just hunt and peck through the software yeah. of how I, for home recording. And so then I step into the studio and he's using, I think I had like, I had Pro Tools 8 and it was like a, a cheap version of it. And he had like Pro Tools 12 or 13 or something and the Pro version. But right. the ecosystem is still so similar. Like I understood where you put right. your plugins. I understand how do you get your different views. I understand how do you automate things. How do you do all that stuff? It's just fancier and more in-depth, but it's still the same sort of kernel um, uh, workflow, I guess, is, is the word. Uh, and yeah, so like when exactly. I look at Logic or things like that, I'm going like, Whoa? I don't, you know, like I can figure it out, but I've never used it. And so for learning how to mix sound, that barrier was, was gone. You know, um, I think it would have been way harder if he had been using, you know, pick your DAW. I don't, I don't know, but the only one I knew was or yeah. Um, some, some, uh, uh, I use studio one. That's my favorite, but like, uh, like if if you're not familiar with the interface, it can be quite, quite difficult to try and pick that up while also trying to learn mixing. Yeah, I agree. Um, speaking of which, did you notice him using, I, I heard you notice, uh, heard you mention that, uh, you were familiar with the stock pro tools software, which probably means they mm-hmm. came with a, a few things like an EQ plug yeah. and stuff. Was he using yeah. the stock EQs or was he using third party EQs that you didn't know, recognize? I'm pretty sure he was using third party plugins. Yes. Um, like for EQing, no, for EQing, I think it was stock. So it's a, because picturing it now, I think it's, it's a, a lot more advanced than the one that's, uh, right. it's going to look a little different, certainly because it's, an but I'm pretty version, sure, but yeah. I'm pretty sure for the actual, just for just the EQ, it was the native, um, pro tools, uh, EQ. And then, I mean, for a lot of the other, um, dynamic stuff, your compressors, you know, stuff. like Yeah. That. He's, he was using a lot of, um, third-party plugins any and brands that you care to mention that you recognize uh that you come to mind so not in terms of not in terms of stuff for sort of i'm gonna say like general audio processing but he was using mxr plugins for electric guitar work i remember that specifically interesting and using the style of plugins where they have like a drag and drop stomp box kind of yeah, interface. Yeah. And, um, and so he was, he used that a, a little bit. I think, I think it was some, there was another couple of brands that he was using. And again, I don't know if like, I don't know if MXR makes the plugin for that or if they outsource that to a third party and then just sort of brand it. Like, I, I don't know how that works. Yeah. Um, and I, I also don't know, like, if there really is a big difference in that. I think the reason he did it is because he's a guitarist as, you know, one of his main instruments. Sure. And so it's, I don't know, it's it's an interesting thing about, like, tweaking guitar tone if you're People really used real to interfacing. Right. <laughs> well, there is that. 
I mean, I'm really picky about it because it's it's hard yeah. to get it right. Of course. But beyond that, like if you're used to the interface of stomp boxes for your your drive for your for your electric guitar, then you don't have to think as hard. And and I feel like that really analog sweeping, you know, turning a dial and knobs and switches on a stomp box is a lot less of a mental process for getting the drive right on your guitar huh. than adjusting like numbers and graphs and sliders and stuff, sure. which it's just, it's a different way of doing it. And, and it's, I feel like you have to think about it if you're doing it in, um, I, again, like in a plugin that works more like just a general audio processing totally plugin for compression or drive or you know, whatever you want to call it, you know. So um, that that was kind of interesting. And he had some, he had bought some, <laughs> this, this is kind of a, a, a side thing. I'll keep it brief. But he had bought some, or bought some preamps that, from some famous studio, like physical preamps. He had a couple of them in a rack mount. Yep. And it was literally the kind of thing where they wouldn't want to work and he'd actually like smack them They'd be like popping and fizzing and stuff. He'd just slap them and then they'd work. Like something out of a movie. Like, oh, man. He's like, oh, I got to get this fixed. I'm like, bro, yeah, you got to get this fixed. <laughs> uh, let me just ask you a few like uh, brand names that may sound familiar to see if they jump out at you. Universal Audio, anything like that jump out at you? Like, uh... I mean, that's general enough that I... Uh, not, you recognize no. the name, but you don't think he, he used anything like that? Um, fab filter. Does that sound familiar? That does sound familiar. Okay. But I couldn't swear to that one. And then isotope. Yeah. He used isotope. Yeah. Yeah. That's use that one. super common for the, for the high end, uh, for the high end guys. Um, last thing before we move on from the pro recording experience that you had. Uh, well, I lied. I have two things. Uh, number one is, did he, you mentioned the MXR recording stop box thing. Um, was he generally trying to, you know, get your guitar to sound the way you wanted it to out of an amp and then miking that amp or getting the line out of that amp and, and recording that signal? Or was he recording you basically dry and then adding effects? Because like the MXR thing almost sounds like he was, he was doing the latter. It was, uh, it was a little bit of both. Okay. So he would use so we used a couple of different amps and um one of the best guitar tones that we got was actually through splitting the guitar signal and chaining into two amps simultaneously what song is that um, on so people can look it up so that would have been on i think that would have been on on my newer record so we're now I've, I've recorded two eps with that guy yeah. um so on my second record this this song um actually i think pretty much the whole record we did that i know on sugar we did that and then it was the fattest nastiest guitar tone i've ever gotten um of that sort of like soft clipping overdrive kind of kind of pushing the tube amp kind of thing right i don't remember if he used a tube like an attenuator or not i don't think he did but um he, we we sort of neutered it a little bit because it was blowing everything else out of the mix and we had to create room for the horn section and so every time I listen to it, I'm like, oh, that does sound nasty, but gosh, that was so fast. Yeah. Like, yeah. Live, that would be freaking perfect. And um, so Sugar was like that. 
and then do right the the tone the tone on do right was one of those where i didn't know we could get that sound and there's a couple guitars that are playing back and forth sort of talking to each other the whole time through the track right um and it's it was it was an awesome experience especially because what the amp sounded like in the room is what it sounds like on the record because the guitar is dry there's no spatial effects i don't think we compressed it at all because i'm playing well we did we did it in a transparent fashion right um and there was no post drive that said on some of the stuff like any kind of spatial effects meaning everything from reverb to delay right that's what i mean like they're they're the effect of space between the sound source and the listener right um all of that stuff was done post because you, his philosophy, and I, I think this is pretty much standard, is that you don't want that going into your mic, right? You sure. don't want delay going into the mic. Including and, delay used as an effect? Like if you're deliberately yeah. going to for stacking echoes and stuff like that? I mean, maybe if you're trying to get something really ethereal, but we didn't do too much of that Yeah, kind that's of not stuff. really your style. I was just curious. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think for some things, and, and definitely like back in the day, that's how you'd have to do it. But it's, um, I, I think his mindset was like with drive and that kind of stuff, you're going to build a tone that's bigger than you want, and then you're going to carve away until it fits in the mix the way you the way you like it. Mm-hmm. And, but with the spatial effects, again, I don't know if anybody uses that term. That's just that's what I always think of. Um, you don't necessarily want that baked into your your standard audio or your your original audio file because what if you decide that you want a different subdivision what if you decide that you want to pan this way off to the left and have this echo and pan this way off to the right and have them sort of slap backing off of each other well you can't do that as easily if you are recording your echo or your reverb you know and and baking it into that file because it's coming out of the speaker and then into the gotcha. mic that way so i th- i think what you're getting at is the concept of like if you want whatever change you might want to make in the future to be reflected in that delay in that right. reverbed sound right then in those echoes that you hear um, then you need to make sure that you're doing that after you record it right because right Right. Uh, otherwise, any kind of tweak you make to the recorded sound isn't going to be affected. Like it's already been reverbed, it's already been delayed, so like you can't right. really make the same kind of effect that you would. Uh, no, yeah, it's sort of like the difference in like in film work between getting really good lighting, really good focus, and then doing your color grading after the fact versus getting crap lighting, having the focus be bad, and have right. to refine it and recolor it and touch it up and adjust the lighting like. You know, it's that same idea of start with something really, really good at at the one thing and then take it and do whatever you want with it rather than specialize the crap out of it. And it's like, oh, great, great. we got to haul the tube amps back in here because, you know, we thought we got what we wanted, but it's actually a little bit off from the drums once we're syncing everything up. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, your echo is actually wrong. Right. So. Cool. It, it's, yeah. Um. When you first started playing live, uh, or shortly thereafter, did did you have any major like lessons learned? Like, oh, I really need to make sure I can hear my vocals in my monitor before I I really jump into uh, my set or or things like that. Um, 
I don't, I don't know that I had anything quite like that. I had, um, I, I really struggled with tempo at first, just from being so amped up. And I mean, like, like the adrenaline, so, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And sorry, we're like, talking audio and guitar. So I wanted to be clear about what we meant by amped <laughs> up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But just you just yeah you're you're you got adrenaline and your heart's going faster yeah. you're you're breathing hard and um, especially like when you haven't spent that much time on stage as well like you always ought to be excited before playing always like if you lose that you're you're not probably going to keep doing it um, and so I think that's a really healthy thing and it makes it fun and exciting and it's a rush I love that whether it's small or big. But when when I first started performing, um, I would play really fast, and and I also I, I it's because my mindset going in was I need to impress people, and I think it it did impress some people, but it also made people um, see my age for what it was because I was just a teenage kid trying to impress people mm. instead of being okay with um, just. You know, like when you go to an open mic and you, you want to make people go, wow, I'm like, I got three songs. And it's got to be just, you know, on point to make people go like, whoa. And that happened, but that didn't necessarily build the following way that I assumed that it would. Um, yeah. Because it doesn't necessarily, like, stick with people as well. You know, it knocks them over in the moment, but it doesn't go home with them. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny because, like, that's not the person the person that the people will go out and look up right and like start following uh yeah what the person that they do that for is the person that like i, I don't know about you but like in my experience it's the person that walks up to him and talks to him after the show and like says hey yeah. it looks like you were enjoying that song i'm glad you glad you heard it like uh, yeah yeah good to see you my name's daniel nice to meet you things like that like that'll get someone to follow you so much faster than than like impressing right. them with a perfectly nailed rendition of that song that they just heard on the radio four weeks ago or whatever yeah i i agree and you know what what turned me around on that was somebody got in my face and um and very bluntly but very nicely told me you're too talented to think about it the wrong way you need to stop trying to impress people. You need to have more confidence that in the legitimacy of what you're doing. You need to believe that it's that even if you don't impress someone, that your music is valid and that your music is worth listening to and on a on a more like human level rather than just trying to blow people away. And um and I actually I've had two different artists tell me that um on two totally separate occasions but you know people who i yeah. respect who are in the tacoma music scene who came up to me afterwards and were like that was great but hey you're not like i was some arrogant punk or something like that either no one has ever accused me of that because I, I definitely wasn't but rather that like chill and believe in yourself yep you know you don't have to try so freaking hard to be the baddest guy with uh six strings at, at this open mic right yeah. you probably are anyway so just you know which is always was it was always hard to hear 
when people said that because again i had such a lack of confidence when people would say like we all know that you're a great guitar player like just chill and i'd be like i don't i i don't know that i am and they're like just shut up yeah. you know <laughs> like quit making excuses be graceful say thank you and sometimes maybe care less about being a badass and care more about being soulful you know care more about making people cry than making people go wow sure uh and and that was really impactful to me. I, I didn't. It, that's something that I think about to this day, and I, I hope to never forget. You know, as early on, like early lessons in playing live and uh, doing shows with other musicians. Are you familiar with the uh, phrase "Type A personality"? I mean, I've heard it. I've never. I, yes, but I, I couldn't give you a definition of what that means. The, I, I I couldn't either. We'll call it for the the purposes of right now. Uh, you know, someone who is like very business like, straightforward, down to business sort of thing. Like, uh, you right. know, one, two, three has to do lists and and is very organized. Yeah. Is that something that you would consider yourself as when it comes to music? Because I don't. I'm kind of your friend, and so I, I don't consider. Yeah. I don't yeah. think that you would consider yourself that way in general in life. Or I mean, correct me if I'm overstepping my. No, you're here. you're on you're on point there, Daniel. Uh, yeah, I am sometimes with with music. Like I'm very much I, I believe in in variance and interpretation, but I I definitely am pretty type A when it comes to music. About like like in working with a band, I um, or say leading a band. I want people to be creative and I'll ask for people to be creative and encourage that and mm -hmm. let's try things. But when it comes to the fundamentals, like I can be very inflexible and I think you need to be, you know, saying like you have to keep a consistent tempo if that's what we want. Or if we're going to decelerate at the end of a song, like you have to do that. We have to be on point. You can't, you know, uh, I work, one of my good friends is a drummer, uh, workers, me and my band, um, had to have a conversation say, Hey man, you can't have your head in your music like this. You know, you can't have your head down and your shoulders just rocking out for yourself because you need to be able to see cues from me. Right. Uh, if, if we're going to have a really good performance together, we got to be able to communicate, which means that you can't just be in your own little shell grooving here, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I can be pretty, I can be pretty type A with that kind of stuff. But I mean, to me, that's just musical excellence that maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm being too uh, type A about that. I, I don't know. Now, now you're giving me my own head. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> another part of the podcast, uh, this is a uh, part of being on here as, um, as a performer, as opposed to a producer. Um, so like, I guess, yeah. I mean, one of the things that like, I am also very type A, and that's the reason why I asked that question when it comes to music, especially. And it's because I think, I suspect, because I literally just spent probably 10,000 hours over the course of my life of, of playing music. And so, like, I, I expect myself to be spot on. I expect myself to, if I make a mistake for the average person not to notice that I've made a mistake because I recovered so quickly, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and things like that. And I wonder if that kind of bleeds into, in fact, there was at one time in my life where I noticed that it, it bled into a, a live performance on an open mic. And I was angry that I had flubbed a song and like, and the guy I was playing with, who was just playing some drums behind me was like, I mean, man, that's not fun. 
I was like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. This is, yeah, uh, you're ruining your evening. This is supposed to be fun. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing to me, I think, I think what's really important to me about um, playing live and that whole, you know, you you make mistakes, right? Um, I grew up being a classically trained piano player, and I don't really play much piano anymore. Um, but there's so many things that were instilled in me that, you know, affect the way I think about music. And one of those things is that in classical music, you perform until it's, or you practice until it's flawless, right? Well, when you're playing tons of shows and just even more of a contemporary style and as a guitarist and that kind of stuff, as a, you know, you're a singer, you're a guitarist, you've got to remember so much. You can't, you can't go that deep, right? You're going to make mistakes. I mean, yeah. any concert pianist, if they're being honest, will tell you they make mistakes as well. Um, but it, to me, it's not about did I make mistakes or that kind of things, but it's how do you respond to it and what's your attitude towards it? Right. You know, being in a band with guys who would make mistakes, that's a given. If, you, if you're not in a band with guys who make mistakes, it's because you're not in the band. Um, but there are guys who will make mistakes because they didn't, they don't care because they didn't really practice and they didn't learn the song or they didn't really work on whatever it is they're right. there. You ask them as a band leader to work on, or just as a bandmate to say, Hey, we need to get this ironed out. Um, and there are other guys who make mistakes because they, they had a brain fart, right. Or they, they're just, they're human, right. We make mistakes. You get distracted or you're, you're, you just do it wrong because we're imperfect but they don't want to and they really care about it. And so it's not that like the measure of like getting upset and like, you know, sometimes we get really bent out of shape internally when we make mistakes because we want everyone to know, like, like I'm not okay with making a mistake. You know, like <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't want to suck. Right. I want to be good. And I respect you as the audience and I want to play really well for you and for me. And it's worth it. You're worth it, you know, and, and you deserve my respect in that regard. And so sometimes like you can overdo the whole, like, ah, attitude right. because you care about that but i don't think that that care should go away right you, you got to right. handle it right but you really should care and the most infuriating thing is playing with musicians who don't really care right. it doesn't bother them <laughs> you know um it's one of my favorite lines from from uh from any movie is i don't i can't remember the exact scene but shrek says to donkey about something he's like doesn't that bother you yeah, you know wh whatever it was, and I just when I see people who just are so laissez-faire, yeah, I'm like, you don't have to like smash your guitar because you hit uh, you were half step off on that bar chord and it sounded real bad for right. half a second, but it should bother you, <laughs> you know? at least notice. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure, <laughs> for sure. Um, cool. Um, your first recording, if I'm not mistaken, was not with that, that semi-pro producer, though. Um, what was your first recording experience like? Did you do it yourself, or...? I did. So, my first recording experience was with that Pro Tools software that somebody had given me in the audio interface, and my dad had this old, like, I think it was like a 2004 iMac, and... Um, what kind of was it an avid interface is that the 
brand? Yeah, so I still have it because um, Avid is a company that makes. Um, is it DigiDesign? Is that the company? I think it's. I think. I think they're all sort of like one DigiDesign, Avid, and then Pro Tools is a subsidiary. I think Avid's the the parent company. Um, just a little two channel with uh, you know with Phantom Phantom Power in it, and um, I had. Somebody had given me some cheap little condenser mic with a shock isolating uh, mount for it. And so I had seen there was a, what was the deal? Um, Guitar Center was doing their singer-songwriter like contest thing. It was oh. like the first or second year they had done it. Cool. And I misunderstood the contest and thought that I needed to like make a recording, not like a live video. And so I had a song and I just started tracking stuff and the software came with like a drum loop pack. Yep. And so I like cut and pasted and built my own drum lines and stuff and put that together. And I recorded a, I recorded a track, um, just direct running guitar straight into the audio interface using the, the built-in native plugins that were there. And, um, and then I took like, uh, sleeping bags and hung them up on the walls and built like a sound cage to track the vocals, yep. you know, go hit the pre-roll, run in there, put on the headphones and start singing, you know, no pitch correction or anything. Cause I didn't have any kind of like, I didn't have a Melodyne plug in. I, I, I think I was only like 16, uh, maybe 17 at the time. And uh, I didn't have money or wherewithal to do anything beyond what I had. And so I just made it work. You had the time. And you had the time to do I, it as many times as it took to make it until you were happy, right? Right, right. And so I did that, and then I was like, well, shoot, why don't I just keep recording? And so I recorded like seven or eight more songs doing that. Some of them were uh, more of the same, like a full band set up. Some of them just uh, acoustic guitar and vocals and um, just kind of experimenting and... I'm still sometimes shocked with how good that sounded. Mm -hmm. I never had it mastered or anything, but I still have the old, the old audio files and there's hidden videos on YouTube with, you know, like lyric videos with misspelled words and stuff in it because. <laughs> Cause you were 16. Because I was, yeah. And yeah. spelling is still one of those things that's uh, just not, I'm not naturally gifted at. And, um, I work at it. Stupid subtitle software doesn't have the red squiggly underneath it when you misspell it. And no, it does not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was my first experience, and it definitely made me. It, it made me very, very like sure that I wanted to go to a proper studio with a with an engineer after that, and um, and then, you know, like I spent nothing on that first record but my second record's like so far beyond anything i could have done at home because i had like three-piece horn sections i had you know professional key players and an actual drummer and stuff like that you know and i, I brought in a cellist for one of the songs and um did you do a short like three song ep in between um no i did i did that first stand by you and 
so stand by you that's off of my my first like studio like professionally recorded one so that that's off the um uh the nobody else ep yeah so that one had stand by you and uh that rock one uh break my bones nobody else my yeah. life um were you working with more. a professional then, or were you working with yeah. a yeah, student yeah. professional or, or whatever? That was never no, no. Clear so to I, me. I was working with the same guy who recorded my my last EP as well. So that really, was my, yeah, interesting. So it, it sounds pretty different. The that first professional EP from the second one, yeah. And I think the biggest difference is like you can hear my voice has changed quite a bit. And I went in that first time with songs. I went in the second time with arrangements and parts. There you go. Um, and I knew the process at that point. And so I had, I brought in my own drummer and, you know, for that, that second one. Um, whereas with the first one, the, the producer brought in his own drummer and um, it was so, it, it took a lot less time to do the four songs um, rather than, you know, of the second EP. Like it, it didn't just take one track's worth of time less. It was like 40% less time to produce the second EP than it was the first one. And, you know, again, I, I, I keep using first and second. It's like, I, I've put out three EPs. <laughs> the very first one was that homemade one. So we're, we're for all intents and purposes, we're going to keep that as, is that the one I, I repaired? That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, that's the that's the one that you repaired. So I guess maybe that did have Stand By You on it. Like an old so recording So I thought of your it. friend from TCC had helped you with that. The same guy who did some videos for you. So, now I'm getting mixed and up. And I can't remember his name. Oh, Andrew. Andrew. Yeah, Andrew Perez. So he did, we did some YouTube videos, and then I think he he just took the audio from that and mixed it. And then we put it on a CD with the studio recorded songs that I had like put together myself. And so there gotcha. was like, and I handmade CDs that would feature different combinations of yeah. songs, depending upon when I would do a batch and what people liked or didn't like. So with that one, it's like, I, I kind of almost forgot about that because he wanted to do like a whole EP and um, I, for some reason just was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to actually like multi-track record and try to do drums and all this kind of stuff. I just want to do live and record it like that. That's, that's all I want to do and put the stuff on YouTube and then we can take the audio tracks and put them on a CD, mm -hmm. which in hindsight, I should have, I should have trusted him and got over myself and actually done it. I don't, again, I couldn't tell you why I didn't, I didn't want to do that, but, um, yeah. And I forgot about that. I forgot. That's right. You, I gave you those files and you fixed the phase cancellation on it. Which yeah. Uh, I, I was just, uh, I didn't know what that was. I didn't even know what that was. You taught me about phase cancellation and getting your mics at different, you know, different distances and being like, you know, if they are, you got to get the sound waves lined up perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I was just teaching somebody about that like two weeks ago. My, uh, my brother has a piano YouTube channel. And oh, so I was talking to forward. him about, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm a teacher by instinct. Yeah. So I love to share, you know, I love to take what I've learned and teach somebody else that, um, 
especially because I'm not a great student. So I, <laughs> I like to make it easy on other people because I assume they're as boneheaded as I am and <laughs> not, <laughs> not willing to learn yeah. until they get really hit a wall. So yeah. I'm like, here, let me just offer this to you so you don't have to hit your head on the wall like I did. But <laughs> I, that, I, that's the same thing that I try to do, too. In fact, that's why I started this whole thing. Um, right. I I want to know. Let's try to change gears here because I think we okay. We got a little bit of time left, um, but I do want to ask a few kind of higher level questions. Um, as I look down at my to do list and not at the camera, on this live stream. Hi. Um, uh, do you uh, do you make songs or albums? Do you know what I mean by that? I know what you mean by that. Um, I've done both. Um, so on the Nobody Else EP, I made a bunch of songs and then pulled from that and made a record. And then the other, like the, um, the Love Is, uh, EP, um, that one was much more of a, like, cohesive album kind of thing. And when I went into the studio, we ended up reordering the songs for, uh, it, it made more sense, but I had written everything in this sort of storytelling order. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I didn't write the songs in that linear fashion. You know, there's, there's four tracks on that EP. I didn't write them in that order, but they told a story when they're played in that certain order. Mm. The reason why I did that was because it's kind of talking about like a breakup that I went through. And when, and sort of like where my head was at when I wrote each of the different songs. Um, but I think the record plays much better from beginning to end when you actually take that order and flip it around, mm -hmm. um, which we did. So starting the, the record out with the best song on it, which is Do Right, in my opinion, um, made way, way, way more sense. But I definitely have written things like, with that almost big story picture in mind, trying to tell a narrative, trying to, and that's why it was so wait, really hard for before me. Before we drill down too much further, I want to make sure I understood yeah. that you wrote the songs kind of noticing that they could have a, a narrative structure if played yeah. one, two, three, four. Well, not right. what you could right, consider right. one, two, three, four, right? right? right, right but right. then you ended up mastering it and playing and putting it on the album in four, three, two, one. The opposite yeah. order, making yeah. it a gradual descent into depressing, broken relationshipness. <laughs> um, no, because so, <laughs> so without you know, definitely interrupt me if I get too pedantic here. So the song "Love Is" is a song that I wrote before, which is the last song in the album. But it's a song that I wrote before my ex girlfriend and I broke up. Uh -huh. And it's a really, really hopeful song because I was in a really hopeful spot. Um, it then was supposed to go to Sugar, which is sort of uh, two middle fingers in the air, like go love yourself um, kind of uh, a <laughs> okay. uh, song. That's right? the nicest I thing I've ever heard Luke say. Uh, in, in that vein, I'll, I'll just say. <laughs> well, I, I'm keeping it clean. Um, so, uh, so that you know, that one was like, again, chronologically talking 
uh, about like after the breakup, and then it would go to um, Far Away, which is about being depressed, sort of after that and traveling. And I, I still remember being on a trip to North Africa. Like when I play certain parts of that song, I still go there in my head, and I can see myself standing on this little dirt road, okay. and you know, like going home that night and writing down the lyrics, or going back to where I was staying that night. And then it ends, you know, again, this is my original sort of narrative. It ends with do right. Well, do right is, is is about getting into a new relationship. And it's talking about the whole thing is, you know, if I could sum up the whole song, it's, um, you know, it's, it's not easy when a woman's done you wrong. So do right. Right. That's the, the whole, the whole thing is going into a relationship. Someone's interested in me and being like, look, I just don't want to get my heart broken. So whatever you do, do the right thing. Hmm. You know, if that's breaking up, be honest with me, be straight with me. Cause you know, my ex had done a lot of, she, she'd said a lot of things that really were not true and did it on purpose to hurt my feelings. And I mm-hmm. took them to heart, even though I knew they weren't true. And so that was my mindset. Well, we flipped that around. And so you start with a song, Do Right, because it's a freaking banging song. Right. And then you go into Far Away because it's kind of funky and interesting. And then we, and then Sugar, and then it ends with what sounds like the most hopeful of all songs, because it is hopeful, Love Is. And so when you play it that way, it's not like descent into emotional, like it doesn't right. read that way. Because originally, really, originally Do Right was more of a here comes the sun kind of mo- moment. You yeah, know? It, really, it was it really like was. a return back to hope sort of sort of thing, um, and also like cautiously optimistic sort of feel. Uh, if I were to yeah. sum it up, if that if you feel like that's fair, it was a you know it was a moment where I realized like I'm okay with being single, mm-hmm. right? I'm okay with me. I'm at peace with the people in my life and the people who are not in my life. I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with myself. I'm I'm all right. Not everything's right, but I'm all right. And that's where I wrote that song from. And then immediately met the woman who is now my wife. <laughs> so worked out pretty it, well. It worked out pretty well. But like you know, and and the reason why we flipped it was more like like Michael, my producer, told me he's like, you want to catch people at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? What's your best song? Well, do right. Well, let's catch them with that. Right? Yeah. You, you're, people don't listen to albums in that same way anymore, right? People are going to find you on Spotify or find you from YouTube. So, like, put your best foot forward, put the song you're most proud of forward, and then, you know, they, if they want to listen to more, they'll listen to more. And if you Actually, don't hook them with that song, like... On that note, is the Spotify thing an argument against it matters that your best track is number one? In, in a way, it sort of is. Because, like, if your best track is number four... And that rises to the top of the Spotify charts. Then, then that's you know, if it's it's the fourth one on your album or EP or whatever. Uh, yeah, but it, it doesn't I, matter I to Spotify. Spotify doesn't care what track number it is on on your album or EP. I guess I guess it doesn't. I guess it really doesn't matter. But like the more I think about it, it doesn't. Like selling albums, it did. I I totally agree. That's actually one of the things that I think is super interesting about the time that you and I kind of started making music and producing our own music is that like we kind of put out albums at the time when albums are going through their death throes in in many ways right 
Um, I know it is kind of funny. Like for instance, I don't think Sgt. Pepper's could be written today in the same way because it was it was kind of a concept album at least, uh, even mm-hmm. initially. And like the idea that yeah. that like an artist would come in and like have an idea of the order of tracks that should they should go in uh, is kind of preposterous. Yeah, it, it's it's just a totally different world now. Yeah, you know, it. it it's not it's not at all the same and i think i was still thinking in like cd terms but i also one of the other reasons that there was a point why i or a point where i finally not only was like okay let's switch the order of the songs but where i actually believed in it and wanted it was when i realized that there was still a part of me that was still paying way too much attention to that breakup narrative mm-hmm. and i was like i don't want to do that anymore yeah and and I was like, if I do it this other way, I don't actually go through the same place. Like when I when I play those songs, I go to places in my mind, but it's not the same depth of feeling because I I can do that too easily. I'm a person who can be really high and really low. Yeah. And I I was like, kind of, I, it was like a mental health thing where I'm going like I I think I want to retell this story a little bit from the way I've been telling it to myself for months and months and months before going in to track all these these songs. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we got, it looks like 15 minutes in our scheduled time. Um, I want to ask, what's the hardest part for you when composing a song? Like your own original work? Is it, and I'll give you some multiple choices here, because okay. I, I think that it would be probably helpful if we could try and get maybe the same question answered from from different musicians and and i'll give you room for another too and let me know if i need to add add an option here so uh your options are the first chord progression the first lyrics the first melody or hook the bridge the chorus or an outro or intro Um, I actually, it's none of those, <laughs> so you're going to have to ask cool. an option. <laughs> um, it's the second verse. Second, the second ver- verse. And because you don't want it to be the same as the first? Yeah, because it's like, I've been stuck on songs on the second verse, because usually when I really start believing in a song, I'll have a like I'll have either an idea for a chorus and a verse and there's a relationship between the rhythmic cadence of the song and the melody and the lyrics that you actually use so sometimes I will get really stuck on the first verse of everything sort of fitting together and then going into the second verse I'm like I need to retain elements of that but I also want to take it somewhere else you know and if I'm trying to tell a story i go where am i going to go in the narrative if i'm trying to tell something more emotional or you know pick your emotion um i don't want to just restate the same thing in different words i want to go further i want you know i you gotta push the narrative as the writer would say in a story right yes very much so for me it's always coming up with that second verse um and 
I mean, like in terms of the words or in terms of the feel, uh, I just want to drill down. A lot of times it's in terms of, it's in terms of the words, like getting words that are going to fit with the cadence the way that I want. And, um, you know, like, uh, an example I use with, with, uh, a lot of my students, um, you know, when I have a beginning guitar student, we'll play through Frere Jacques, right? Which of course is in French, a French folk song. Um, but when we encounter it in the book, they have the lyrics to the song in French and in English. Well, I speak a little bit of French and I read a little bit of French. And so I realized the lyrics are swapped around. And so I do this with the kids i'll translate it and say okay this is you know this is actually how the lyrics fit together and it's backwards in english well you could say it either way in english and it makes sense right brother john are you sleeping morning bells are ringing or morning bells are ringing brother john are you sleeping i mean you could say it anyway and it makes sense and so the the reason why you do it is because of the melody because you have four quarter notes in the beginning part of the melody two quarter notes and a half note Right, da 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 da. Right, so you have to hit that pause, and so for me, that's one of the things that makes a good melody. Is you have, you can put a variation on it, but you have to have some sort of rhythmic cadence that goes with the lyrics you're saying and the rhythm of the song. They have to fit together, and so my problem is I will find the perfect words in the first verse to go with that whatever melody with the chord changes that I've come up with. And then a second verse, I'm like, ah, crap. I'm just like repeating myself. And it always, that's where I get stuck. I've got stuck on a, a song like that for a year and a half and I wouldn't give up on it. And then I, I ended up finishing it and it ended up being one of my favorite parts of the song, but it was that stupid freaking second verse. <laughs> <laughs> that got me stuck. Is it just the first line of the verse, uh, or is it just, uh, or was it like pulling teeth? Uh, oh god, it was like pulling teeth, and it's like it's you, you just like chew away on it, like a dog chewing on a bone. You just have to like just gnaw and gnaw and gnaw on it because I'm not okay with putting out something that I believe is mediocre. Yeah, I you know? I feel that. Uh, is that generally how songwriting goes for you lyrically, like pulling teeth? Um, it can be all over the map. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's always like that. Um, I think, I think a lot of times the, the struggle. So, you know, you ask like which part of the song is the hardest. Well, it's always the second verse, but the hardest part about writing songs for me, is feeling genuine, but also feeling interesting. And so if I'm going to sing like a love song, it has to feel like, something I actually mean, I guess. Yeah. And, and I think that might, I, I don't know that that's a unique thing in songwriting, but I haven't heard anybody else really talk about that. But I, I don't think I could just be like a songwriter for, um, you know, it, it, for, for myself. Like if I, if I write 10 songs every year, then I get famous and make a million bucks and all that. Or put your number out there, whatever it is. Um, I could maybe do that for other people, but if I'm going to sing the song, I got to really feel it. I really want to believe it. And then I also go like, it also has to be like, if I step back and I go like, okay, taking my feelings out of those lyrics and that chord progression, is that something a musician of my caliber would actually appreciate? Right. That's sort of like how respectable is that as a, on a musical level. 
and that's that's the thing to me that is difficult in songwriting beyond the specific sections is do, am i really feeling it because i'll like i'll get these feelings in in the evening and i'll put like play around with some chords and some lyrics or whatever and then i'll just start feeling almost like a little bit fake like i'm not trying to let the song tell the story i'm trying to just finish a song so i can have a new song mm. and i get in my own head with that and i'm and then I, it just kind of i lose it completely lose the moment and so i'll scratch down some lyrics and maybe um some chords that i was playing or at least the relative chord positions you know yeah. like uh one chord four chord two chord like that like that kind of thing write them over the lyrics and i'll leave it for six months nine months sometimes because every time i come back to it i i don't feel it but then at some point i come back and i do feel it and i go like all right now i can actually write this and interesting i i noticed that yeah. you you said one chord four chord three chord uh, there are some guitarists that will be like, I'm sorry, what? Um, because a lot of guitarists maybe only know chord names or only know um, not even that. They, they know, yeah. you mean that one that looks like this? Um, uh, so like, um, I assume that what you're getting at there is like music theory names, of course, yeah. right? Um, do you, is that how you write down ideas? Because I write down my ideas in, in the key that... I wrote them in and I write down what key they're in so that I know that like when I wrote a G here, what I meant was, you know, the, the tonic G chord, you know, right, right. The, the root chord of the scale and not, not like, you know, possibly the right. four chord of the D scale or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I, if I do write something down, I, a lot of times I will make a little audio recording on my phone and I won't even write anything down. But if I do write something down, I'm more likely to just write it down in numbers because for me, there's this magical relationship between finding the right key for the mood that I'm in. Right. And it might not be the ultimate key. And so I, for for work and definitely for playing for church music, um, I'm constantly transposing all the time. So I don't think of, you know, taking, for those who don't maybe, um, you know, have a great understanding of music theory, taking a song from one key and putting it into another key and as I'm playing it. So I might be reading a chord chart in uh, G, but I'm actually going to be playing in B flat major. Um, and so I just don't think about chord names that much. I think about their relationship to each other. This is, you know, first note in the scale, that's my one chord, second note, that's my two chord, you know, that kind of thing. And so I will write them down that way because I'll do this. I'll sit there and I'll, I'll take a capo and I will play through singing the same lyric or, you know, singing it in my head, playing chord progressions, um, and trying to, trying to find keys where it sort of just clicks for me and it helps right. words flow out and it helps a melody flow. Hits that sweet um, spot or makes that part of that chorus or that ver that bridge right. go to the low notes or the high note. And, Ooh, I kind of liked it that time. And, and yeah, and I've had I've had it change with songwriting, where I thought I wanted it in one key and was working away at it, and then you know come back to it later that day and go I don't actually like this key I like it a half step lower, and so I just I I don't think in specific keys very very often, um, you know. If uh, if given a song that was written in the key of G and you knew it was in the key of G but you, like you were told oh but we're going to be playing it in the key of A 
how how confident would you be in your ability to transpose that on the fly in your head um i mean are so we're gonna have to refine some parameters here so replacing all the g chords with an a chord replacing all the e minor chords with so, an I mean, f sharp like, minor chord replace i mean like are we gonna play are we gonna play a song that i know or am i following somebody in a song that i don't know let's say it's the hardest case chords? scenario <laughs> okay so we're playing a hymn i don't have a chord chart they're telling me the chords before we play them but they're telling and the me only the other instrument key. playing is an organ yeah yes and I have to transpose. Um, I'd, I'd be uh, in that kind of situation. I'd say seven and a half to eight out of ten. Wow. I'm pretty confident. Um, I, I just don't. Like, don't know, do we have to take off a finger hard. for you to get below 60% confidence? Like, I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> just tell me that one of the strings is going to snap and I, I don't there know. There you go. The there thing. you go. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I. I been playing a lot of hymns lately uh since covid and the it's like jazz but um more straightforward i guess it doesn't it's like jazz in that there are a lot of accidentals is that what you mean what i mean is like the chords are constantly changing but in jazz a lot of times you're you're constantly modulating into other keys whereas with hymns it's typically very straightforward and what you're actually doing is just playing like a walking bass line under a couple chords and so i've started being able to see through chord charts and go oh this is actually the chord progression these all these other chords in between are just bass notes Mm -hmm. right and and sort of kind of leapfrog my way (laughs) through them and hit the notes that i think i have time to hit and other than that just hit the main chord changes you know so i mean Maybe maybe I'm being a little arrogant. We'll say I I'd be about fifty percent. I'd hit fifty percent of the chords probably, but I think you only need to hit fifty percent of the chords to get ninety percent of the song. In all that's true. Yeah, with all those chord changes, normally you can get by with something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, Oh man. Okay, so we are almost out of time. Let's see. Um, Are there? Do you uh, still do any recording at home uh, on the Pro Tools or anything similar like that? Yeah, I still record at home. I literally have the same setup because I invested um, like money into video recording or you know video stuff. So for my YouTube channel, I constantly am recording the audio separately in Pro Tools and then um, you know EQing it the way that I want, exporting it out, and then syncing that up in DaVinci Resolve with the audio from my camera. And, uh, DaVinci so Resolve is that um, yeah. uh, is that the make and model or is that Adobe DaVinci Resolve? So DaVinci Resolve is made by Blackmagic Design. They are a so it's a audio or not audio. Sorry, it's a video editing um, platform, and they have I think the best color grading in the industry. So I I learned about them through my friend who runs the recording studio, and he uses. Premiere Pro for editing, and he uses DaVinci Resolve for color grading. But they have about ninety to ninety-five percent usability on their free version. So, like ninety-five percent of the full version, you can get completely for free because their their main money maker is they make hardware, they make cameras, they make lenses, they make uh, workstation interfaces for video editing and things like that, processors. Um, so they basically give their software away for free and then get you into their ecosystem, which is unbelievably powerful. It's 
I mean, it's like Pro Tools, but for video. And they have a full suite of audio editing and plugins built into the the system. Um, And it'll auto-sync audio if you want to do that. You don't have to pay extra for things like that. You don't need a separate audio interface, even to record within the software, like for doing voiceovers. Um, They are, it's amazing. 100% 100% amazing. I wish I was had an endorsement and I could make money from saying this, but I just believe in the product a lot. And um, I think that for most filmmakers out there who are trying to get started, what YouTubers like me or whatever, uh, don't pay money for Premiere Pro. Learn how to use DaVinci Resolve because it's, I think, a little bit more powerful and it's free. And cool. So that's uh, Mac software that uh, you use Mac. Uh, I use it on I use it on Windows. I have a Windows, Windows. laptop that I cool. edit on that, but it works for both. Cool. So I I uh, will definitely look that up for sure. Um, are there any third party plugins that you use uh, recording? Um, no, I don't. I keep it simple. I keep it really simple. I just use the native stuff. Um, I want to get some, but I also want to upgrade my my completely overhaul my DAW, like, um, get a new audio interface. I mean, the stuff is 15 years old at this point. Yeah. Almost time for an upgrade. Maybe not quite. Maybe it's like 12, but, uh, so I'm not, I don't have any third party stuff cause I'm waiting until it dies and then I'm going to, yeah, everything new side note. Talk to me before I do that. Um, I'll okay. just, uh, say, let's see. Do you have a policy regarding reading comments about uh, that you post to YouTube or or critics reviews or anything like that of your work that you've ever had done? Um, do I have policies about it? Um, like personal policies. Like there are some that person, avoid it yeah. like the plague. There are some that say, I need to listen to my audience. Um, I pay attention to, um, I try to interact with every comment. At this point, it's it's small enough you know, my channel is monetized. I'm making a little money from it now, but, um, I can keep up with the amount of comments. Um, and so when people request things, I usually will kind of try to put things on the channel for that. Um, when people disagree with me, but are respectful, I try to engage in conversation and learn from them. I I believe it's always good to assume the person you're talking to might uh, know something that you don't. Um, and then if someone's just mean, then I will try to kind of use a little bit of very blunt language, not, you know, not, not being rude, right? Not swearing at them or whatever, but being very clear, like you said this, this isn't true or this mm-hmm. is wrong. Like, please don't do this. Yeah. And then if people want to, uh, then if people want to get irate about it, then I just block them from the channel. Okay. Cause yeah. I pretty much have like a 99% positive feedback from people. Um, and I, I like to keep it happy. And I actually have had people apologize before, like straight up had people like overreact swearing in the comments and people be like, bro, join in with me and be like, bro, what's going on? Are you all right? And have them come back and be like, my life's in shambles right now. I'm sorry. I just screamed at everybody in the comments. I'm going to take that comment down. And like, there's this whole thread in one of my videos where it's like the most amazing peace, love, like just, you know, <laughs> make you believe in humanity in the YouTube comment section where somebody like turned wow. around. 
There's a rare place to find it, right? Right? Like, it's the cesspool of the internet. But uh, <laughs> it is true, but I, I think you really hit on something there that it's it's a lot of people that are hurting pretty bad that are making some of those uh, really vitriolic comments, uh, at yeah. least in my experience. But yeah, um, I think we are just we are, in fact, over time. Thank you for staying with me. Um, no worries. I guess I have maybe maybe one or two more questions, if, and I think they'll be pretty fast. Um, okay. You've worked with studio musicians. Um, do you have any tips for people that maybe aren't familiar with working with studio musicians to get the most out of it? Like, are there uh, is there guidance or how how heavy handed should you be in terms of what you're looking for? Should you let them do their thing? So it depends on. I I uh, I, I think the clearest answer I can give is that you have to be honest. Uh, if you really know what you want, be respectful, but be honest. If you're working with someone and they're not doing what you want and you have a specific expectation, be, be blunt in a very respectful manner. Say, Hey, you know, um, that thanks for doing that. Or, you know, preface it nicely, but then say like, you know, what I, what I really want is this. Could you please do it exactly like this? Um, and what do you think? And usually people, if you are respectful, ask for their opinion, but also say, I specifically do want you to do this, at least to try it, right? If you say that, um, if you're working with good people, they will they'll respond to that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so be honest, be very active in communication, like talking to that person and thank them for their time and their work, even when you're paying them. And um, ask them, even if they're being stubborn, like, I really want you to try this. This is really what I'm picturing. Can we please do this? And then if you're wrong, especially if in a situation like that, if it turns out that it doesn't sound the way you want, tell that person, man, you were right. I was wrong. I'm yep. so glad that yeah, so glad that I listened to you. That kind of thing. That would, that would be my advice. Treat them with respect, honesty, transparency, but stick to your guns if you think something's really worth it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And don't be fake, though. Don't try to come in and try to show people that you're a badass. If you don't feel confident, be confident in communicating that. Not You don't have to grovel. But if you're like, I'm really not sure, so I'm going to need to lean on you guys today. I know what I like. I know what I don't like, but I don't have a clear picture. Mm-hmm. So I would love creativity and input. Like Studio musicians want that kind of communication from the artist who's they're, they're working with. Sure. For sure. Uh do you have any monthly services that you pay for to sell your music on Amazon, promote your music on Facebook or guitar lessons on Facebook, you know, so on and so forth? Not at this time. Um, I mean, I, I obviously I have a yearly thing that I pay for to through TuneCore to publish my my albums. TuneCore, um, T-U-N-E-C-O-R-E dot yeah, com. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's who I go through for publishing my albums. And then I, I, um, pay for my website services, but other than that, I don't pay for any direct advertising right now. Um, who is your web host? Uh, Squarespace. Mine too. Um, were you happy with them? Yeah, I've been pretty happy with them. Um, they, they have good customer service. And I like they're they're very easy to use. 
you know, I don't know how to write to write or read code. So even for me, if I want to put in um, something specific, like I wanted to, I recently upgraded to their newer site um, system, and I wanted to embed a Spotify player. Well, they don't have it built in, um, but it was very easy to figure out how to copy the code and get it pasted into the right spot and get it to work. Um, so I've been really happy with them. So TuneCore doesn't just publish your albums to let you sell them electronically on Amazon. It, it lets you also do, and, and like Apple Music, I assume, it also lets you do Spotify streaming and royalties from that as, as well? Yeah, I think you can somewhat select who you go with, but they, they do, um, that's how my music is on Spotify, is through TuneCore. And the only, the only place that my music, that I put my music that didn't go through TuneCore was uh, Pandora because you have to separately submit your music to Pandora. Um, <laughs> interesting. Is, yes, exactly. Very interesting. <laughs> um, it's one way to describe. Yeah, interesting is a nice word that we could use for that. Uh, cool. Well, sweet. Uh, thank you for joining me. Do you have? Uh, you said you have a Squarespace website. What's the uh, What's yeah. the address that people can go to? So you can go to my website, loopwallstead.com, and there are links there to all of my music, to my various YouTube pages. Uh, for those who are interested in lessons, there's all the info there for that. For those who would like to book me, once uh, COVID is no longer the defining thing in the movements of our lives, um, I have information on that and. Uh, all that so go check it out uh, lukewalstead.com Wallstead is spelled like homestead instead bonehead that's S-T-E-A-D and I <laughs> I was just trying to make you laugh um, anyway lukewalstead.com that is me cool we'll have links to all that in the show notes and all that uh, thanks for joining me Luke I hope we can uh, do this again sometime in the future and uh, yeah, yeah all the best to you and uh, thanks for taking the time yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it.